18. The Exodus has now brought us into the wilderness, and this will be the setting for the rest of the book, so you can go ahead and get used to the desert scenery. Uh, but this is an interesting travel route that God has his people take. You know, there are more direct ways uh, to get from Egypt to Palestine than to wander around in the wilderness at Sinai. In fact, they'll, they'll end up circling the mountain for 40 years uh, before they enter the promised land. Uh, now, most of us, when we travel these days, you know, we don't really take time to study a map and figure out exactly where we're going to be heading uh, ahead of time. You know, we trust our devices to, to get us there. But my wife has a newfound hatred for the voice of Siri on her phone uh, because when she was attending her cousin's uh, wedding in Pennsylvania this year, uh, she stayed behind after to help them clean up for a little bit. And then as she was traveling back, it, it, it kept wanting her to get onto the turnpike, but that was closed at that point in the, in the evening for construction. And so it was having her get on and off of toll roads until her cash was totally depleted and she had uh, nowhere to be at that point. Um, and apparently we have tough luck uh, with these kinds of things because uh, one time Rebecca and I were traveling and trying to locate a Chick-fil-A. Uh, and uh, the GPS took us down this, this dirt road with uh, no trespassing signs that were decorated with bullet holes. As it then informed us, you have now reached your destination. Uh, hopefully not our final one. Uh, point of this story, if you find out we're traveling, please pray for us. But, you know, sometimes these devices aren't as reliable as we think they are. Uh, every now and then there's a glitch in the data a mistake. But is that what's happening here? You know, is, is this a glitch? Certainly God could have chosen an alternative route. And in fact, given that he's able to divide the Red Sea, he could have just transported them instantly into the promised land, right? These are people that have been suffering for 400 years in slavery in Egypt, and, and now the plan is to have them wander around in the desert, right? families with small children, limited food supply. What's going on here? Well, as Pastor Peter mentioned last week, one, one of the functions of the wilderness is to be a place of testing for God's people. Now, this is not the kind of testing to see if Israel is worthy for the Lord's favor, right? They, they would flunk that test at the start, and, and it's not the kind of of tests that comes from someone hoping to see them fail. Maybe you were convinced that your teacher had that kind of attitude as they distributed the test. They're just waiting uh, to get back all the incorrect answers and, and judge you for that. But you know, this is testing that is for their good, designed to strengthen faith. And later in the book, we read this in Exodus 20, verse 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And, and so God's testing protects and strengthens their faith in him and their fear of him, which is another way of saying testing is designed to deepen trust. You see, when the wilderness is the route, God himself is the destination. After all, that's the whole point of the exodus, 
Let my people go that they might worship me. God is determined to set his people free so that they might delight in him. And he'll take them through whatever is necessary for them to see and experience that. And several years ago, John Piper wrote a book titled, God is the Gospel, to make the point that as 1 Peter 3.18 says, uh, the gospel brings us to God. Uh, now that might seem obvious, but it's so easy to, to focus on the ancillary benefits of Christianity and, and forget that God himself is the great good that we get. You know, it, it's, it's not just a healed body or a restored marriage or an eternity without sickness or, or even forgiveness of sins that makes the gospel good news. Forgiveness is good because it restores us to God. And here's how he makes this point. He says, when I say that God is the gospel, I mean that the highest, best, final, decisive good of the gospel, without which no other gifts would be good, is the glory of God in the face of Christ, revealed for our everlasting enjoyment. And listen to what he says. The saving love of God is God's commitment to do everything necessary to enthrall us with what is most deeply and durably satisfying, namely himself. Now our passage this morning raises the question, is that enough? Will God be enough for us? If everything that we want or perceive that we need is taken away, is he sufficient? And, and God introduces this question to his people by allowing them to experience hunger. And sometimes when your stomach growls, it reveals what you really love. And in this section of, of Exodus, Israel encounters testing that targets their basic life necessities. You know, we saw back in chapter 15 that they come upon a water problem. And now in chapter 16, we'll look at this morning, they're going to encounter a food problem. And then in 17, it'll be back to another water problem. And in this text, what we see is that God lovingly strips his people of every false comfort, every alternative hope for provision, and he directs them toward himself as the only source and supply. So let's read Exodus 16, verse 1. And they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. And skip down to verse 14. 
And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses... He said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And that word manna, it sounds like the, the Hebrew phrase for what is it, uh, which is the question that they asked when they encountered it in the field. Let's go ahead and pray and seek God's help as we continue this morning. Lord, if there's anything that's clear in this text, it's that you are faithful to feed your people. Lord, we want to come to you hungry this morning. We want to come recognizing we do not live by bread alone, but by every word coming from the mouth of God. And there are words that are presented to us today. Lord, would we feed on them in faith? Would we find ourselves nourished as we come away knowing you are sufficient for us. Lord, help us to see and experience these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to consider three angles on this passage. There's the power of appetite that we notice here, uh, the pattern of provision, and the person of satisfaction. All right, so first, the power of appetite. Well, our our chapter opens with a scene that will soon become very familiar in Exodus, which is the grumbling of the people. Uh, desperate circumstances reveal unbelieving hearts and lead to rebellious responses. And look at their response in verse 2. 
And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. That's a rational response, right? The God who has just delivered ten plagues upon Egypt and divided the Red Sea for them. All he was doing all along was just bringing them out here to kill them in the middle of the, of the desert. Uh, now, of course, you know, we need to recognize that this is a kind of hunger uh, that most of us have probably never experienced before. You know, they're, they're now in the second month of their journey, and food has long run out, and there, there doesn't seem to be a clear end in sight and so their life feels threatened, and so they, they turn against Moses and Aaron, and ultimately against the Lord. But hunger is a weakness that can lead you to do and say some terrible things. You know, just read some of the accounts of famine and siege that are in the Bible and discover what people are willing to do when they are desperate. Starvation brings out animal impulses inside of us, and, and thankfully we've not had to face that, uh, but maybe you're a person who gets pretty grumpy if you haven't had anything to eat yet, you know, the people around you have learned to say, uh, that's the hunger talking here. Uh, well, in this chapter, hunger talks, and, and what they say is striking. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, and that's Probably an exaggeration of what their experience was like in Egypt. Uh, but this is the power of appetite at work. Better that we had died in Egypt. They would rather be in slavery with a full belly than to be free and in hunger. And you know, it's interesting to see the different ways that hunger gets people in trouble in the Bible. You know, the very first sin uh, involved eating what God had forbidden. And the tempter uh, in the garden was a serpent, what the philosopher Leon Cass uh, describes as a mobile digestive tract that swallows its prey whole. You know, the, in one sense, the, the serpent is a symbol for pure appetite. Later in Genesis, Esau will trade in his birthright for food, and it's it's interesting, uh, when the author of Hebrews goes back and, and comments on this, he tells us, don't be sexually immoral like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And what does he mean by that? I don't re remember any naked people running around in that passage. Uh, but what he's saying is that Esau gave in to the force of appetite, and he chose immediate physical gratification over covenant blessing. And it's the exact same impulse that's behind all sexual sin. And Satan will later bring this temptation to Jesus in his own wilderness experience. He, he finds him after 40 days of hunger. And he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And every word in that sentence is carefully crafted. You know, if you're the son of God, if, if God is your father then you can make these stones into bread. After all, don't you yourself say that, that not, e not even an evil father would give his son a stone when he asks him for bread? 
And so essentially Satan is challenging Jesus, can you really trust your father to feed you? It's the same line from the garden. You know, does God have his best, does God have your best interest in mind when he doesn't let you eat this fruit? And the same grumbling attitude we see in Israel in the desert. And so here Jesus is offered to sell his birthright for a single meal. But realize this, we live in a culture that trains you to say yes to every appetite. Every desire or perceived need. The only way that we know how to respond to a craving is to indulge it. That's true in the category of food. You know, hungry? Why wait? Grab a Snickers. A candy bar will satisfy your urges. Uh, by the way, if I've discovered that we've run out of ice cream in our home, that's, that's something I work to remedy right away. Uh, it, it, you know, ending an evening without ice cream, something is not properly aligned in the universe if that's what's going on. And so, you know, if we've run out of grocery money, I'll sell off the kids' toys, whatever we need to do to feed that appetite. Um, Maybe for you, overeating is an issue. You know, you lack self-control. You kind of treat every meal as if it's your last. People look at your plate and they wonder, is this person about to go into the desert for 40 days or what? Uh, But appetites exist in more categories than just food. You know, there's money and spending. I was reminded of a a classic Saturday Night Live skit with Steve Martin when I saw somebody post it on Facebook. And the sketch starts with a husband and wife moaning about all their uh, credit card debt. And they've tried different options about it. And, And then a man shows up in this infomercial type style. And he says, did you know that millions of Americans live with debt they can't control? That's why I've developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called... Don't buy stuff you can't afford. <laughs> and they open up the pamphlet and they, and they read it. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. This sounds confusing. Uh, you know, we, we've trained ourselves to simply spend on things that we think we need, whether or not there are any funds available for it, which is probably why a third of Americans, I read this statistic recently, a, a third of Americans have nothing saved for retirement. Uh, Not just a little saved, but nothing put away for their future, and and many of them approaching retirement age. Everything gets spent now. And so we just, as a society, we don't really have an appreciation for delayed gratification when it comes to how we spend our money. And the digital age has brought a new form of electronic cravings. You pull out your smartphone at every opportunity. You need to get your social media fixed. You, you want that, that hit of the information and connection to people to come streaming in. A day without Pinterest or Netflix is a day without digital food. And obviously there are no breaks in our culture when it comes to sexual appetites. You know, when the whole Ashley Madison event hit the news, I, I had read a, a sobering article by the, the blogger Tim Challies, his wife, Eileen, and she was just expressing godly frustration about the apparent unwillingness of men, and, and including Christian men, to simply say no to their desires. Apparently, we are a people who would rather be enslaved than to go hungry. By the way, I think the discipline of fasting may be more important now than ever. 
in a, in a culture of instant gratification that plays to your senses and always invites you to have just one more. It's so important to learn how to tell your appetites no. And that's what fasting does. You know, by denying yourself good things for a time in order to have better things, you're you're strengthening the spiritual muscle inside of you that helps you to say no to the things that you badly want when hunger comes talking. Now these Israelites were experiencing genuine hunger about something they really needed. You know, they need food. That's a fact. And this is a biological design. Hunger is a mechanism that reminds us that we need something outside of us in order to survive. And this is something that God put in place, ultimately so that we would look to Him. And this is true of every appetite. G.K. Chesterton famously said that every man going into a brothel is looking for God. You know, if you follow a craving, you, you trace it down to its target, you'll see that it is searching for something God-sized. And God has installed these desires in our lives so that when we discover, as C.S. Lewis put it, a desire inside of us that nothing in this world can satisfy, we can only conclude we were made for another world. And that's what God wants his people to see here. He, he takes away food for a time because he wants them to look to him. And then he opens up his hand and provides for them. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain, not fire and brimstone for your grumbling. That might be what we'd expect to read at that point. Bread from heaven for you. Right, that's mercy. But there's a certain pattern to this provision. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. And, and so the test of faith has not ended when bread began to appear on the ground. God portions his provision for each day so that every day requires their dependence on him. That they go out in the morning trusting that once again the Lord has determined to feed them. And this shows us something of the wisdom of God as well as the proclivities of human nature. Because naturally we buck against this system. Look at verse 19. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank. And so we can be right in the middle of experiencing God's blessings and all the while doubting whether he'll be good to us for tomorrow's needs. You know, one of the most entertaining things is to watch my one-year-old son Knox eat his food. Uh, my wife and I call him the human vacuum cleaner. He doesn't really have a proper sense of how much should go in his mouth at one time. Uh, but the amazing thing is the exact moment his food tray is empty, he gets upset. Uh, so his, his mouth can be full, but if you're not refilling the tray with the next round of bites, he's not happy. And sometimes we can be just finishing a meal and worried about what we're going to do when the hunger comes again. It's amazing that no matter how many times I come to the end of a week that God has been faithful 
I can still be anxious about the responsibilities for the coming week. Now, here's the time everything falls apart. <laughs> Finally, I've come to the week that God will let me starve. You know, I, I can wake up in the morning and give a listening ear to the demands of the day and my doubts that the Lord will sustain me through them. But God's very intentional in his pattern of provision. He doesn't give us tomorrow's bread today. Otherwise, we would neglect him. You know, when Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, it's a request that forces us into a posture of dependence and of an approach to God every day. Not a single day gets to be put on autopilot. Every morning is an active engagement of faith. And in that same chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Matthew 6, 24, Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I don't know about you, but I want tomorrow's problems resolved today. I want to rest my head at night with absolute confidence that every need or responsibility or demand that I'll face the next day will be perfectly met. In other words, I want certainty. And in those moments, the promise that God will be with me doesn't seem like enough. And so I turn things over in my mind and I let anxiety attempt to gather tomorrow's manna today. And it always ends up stale. And maybe you're looking further into the future than just the next coming days. Things might look fine for now, but you're convinced that the bread's going to run out in the next five or ten years from now. You see the trajectory of your kids' choices and decisions. You've sought to be faithful in how you raise them. The truth that you imparted to them. But right now it just seems inevitable that they're going to abandon it all. Or maybe the whole category of marriage and family. That idea seems impossible. You, you want to be married. But at this point, life experience uh, has forced you to question whether that will ever come. Maybe there's uncertainty with your career. Or finances are a constant burden and it feels like things are never going to change. It's always going to feel like this. I'm always going to be facing these realities. Maybe uh, the statement I made earlier about retirement has left you in a state of shock and you haven't been able to pay attention to much of the message since then. Uh, because you're, you're looking at the numbers and they just don't seem like they're going to work. You're wondering what's going to happen when the provision runs out. So why doesn't God give us a detailed plan ahead of time? Why doesn't he allow us to see all the specific and surprising ways that he's going to care for us, even the ways that he's going to use the very things that we dread as the means of accomplishing good? Because then we would have no need to trust him. Which is really just another way of saying we would have no need for him. 
The most unloving thing God can do is let our stomachs be stuffed for days to come so that we have no remaining hunger for the one who truly satisfies. As our songwriter Jill Phillips puts it, she says, Too soon, and we take it all for granted, too late is more than we can bear, so you're always right on time with an open hand. Now there's another dimension to this, it's, it's, it's noteworthy that God's going to provide, but that they must go out and gather it in. God works through their work, and so they don't just sit down at the table with everything directly supplied onto their plate and served up for them. Right? They have to labor in the field and collect what God has made available. And so we need to recognize our responsibility in this. You know, hopefully none of us have gotten into this habit of staring at a need and waiting for God to do something while we give ourselves permission to do nothing. You know, concerned about your job security? Make sure you're producing at the company. You know, don't manage things half-heartedly and blame the Lord in the day that your employer questions whether or not they still want to keep you around. Feel like you're losing your spouse or your kids? Do something about it. Face the hard conversations. Make the effort to win them back. Clear things from your schedule that compete with your time and attention. Let's not be lazy in these areas and then use that as an excuse to question the Lord's kindness. God has put manna in the field. Let's go out and take it home. But know this. Your labor alone is not sufficient. And that's why God interrupts Israel's work week and he inserts the Sabbath on the seventh day. You know, lest his people get the idea that by their effort and activity they can live, God forces them to stop working for one day each week. And all they can do is sit back and receive. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day... They gathered twice as much bread, two omers each, and when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Little surprise. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. It's his gift Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. And here, we're given more insight into the human condition. God gives them everything that they need on the sixth day, but they still go out on the seventh to gather, apparently concluding that what they have isn't enough. There's just something about us that still wants to strive after things even when what we have is sufficient. And friends, now more than ever, 
we live in a Sabbathless culture. That's obviously true in, the, in a literal sense. Uh, blue laws are a thing of the past. But we're a society that doesn't know how to turn off work. You're, you're trained over time to, to never unplug, never disengage from the concerns of the job, the information in the world around you. And so you check your work emails at family meals, your iPhone gives a non-stop mental management of everything from what project's going to be due on Monday to what's happening somewhere in the Middle East to the stupid opinion some sports star, star or celebrity just posted on Twitter. Or you're constantly building your imaginary home or life on Pinterest. You know, always discovering the things that are still missing in order for you to be content, creating an unending feeling of need when you already have enough. You weren't designed to survive this pace. To think that seven days a week and 14 hours a day, you better be on the clock to meet the world's real and fictional demands. The Sabbath is not just something God installed for Israel. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. God worked for six days and then He rested on the, on the seventh. And so He's built it into how He's ordered the universe and we would be unwise to ignore it. The question is, do you trust God enough to stop working? Do you maintain space in life where you will just let Him take care of things? It's in His hands to manage? Let me help you answer that question. <laughs> uh, how do you re relate to this meeting? You know, do you let it get crowded out by a calendar that has no margin in it? Are you okay with a work schedule that has you missing Sunday morning just as often as you make it? You know, there, there are different ways that theologians have seen the Sabbath and how exactly that relates to Sunday worship. But at a minimum, I think we see an important principle here that teaches us how we should approach the gathering of God's people. And one that we see modeled in the New Testament church. God gave the Sabbath as a day of rest, but, but specifically for the kind of rest that comes in the form of worship. This is how God defines rest for us. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right, what does that involve? No activity, laying at home on the couch because you had a very tiring day on Saturday. That's not what he's talking about here. Take my yoke upon you. And right there he's introducing this, this term from field plowing. And so now we have this weird labor metaphor inserted in. But then he says, and learn of me. For I am lowly and gentle in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. That's the kind of rest that your soul needs. Learning from Christ. This is discipleship, and disciples have learned how to leave Martha behind in the kitchen and sit down with Mary at Jesus' feet. You protect this meeting, 
And when you come in, you know, do you press the pause button on all the busyness and noise that is surrounding you? You shut off your phone and focus your attention on the master as he feeds you with more than bread alone. Of course, that's ultimately what this account is teaching us. It, it, it pushes us beyond miracle wafers in the sand and it points us to the person that we desperately need. So finally, the person of satisfaction. God is after so much more than just nutritional value here. He's, he's helping his people recognize that he's enough. Verse 6. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the design here. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. Verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness. And what's happening in the wilderness? And behold, the glory of the Lord appeared to them in the cloud. Not you know, as they eat their fill, what's most important is that they see God. And it's the personal covenant name of the Lord that appears here, right? That's what the all, the all caps means there. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the always present one, the one who just is, the totally independent and sufficient one, and if that's who he is, he's obviously capable of feeding his people in a desert. The Lord who has no needs can care for the needs of those he's redeemed. And so the formation of manna out of nothing in the middle of nowhere, it's not just this creative and practical way to solve a food shortage. It is a tangible illustration of the way that creation responds to the beck and call of its maker. And that's how Moses later explains this event in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Why the miracle bread? Why this supernatural provision? Well, it's showing us we don't live by bread alone. We don't just live by natural means. That's not what sustains us. We live by the words that are proceeding from the mouth of the Creator. The words that hold us in existence and teach us how to live. And this means at least two things, right? It, it means that God's words give us permission to be. That's what causes us to live another way. You know, you and I, another day, you and I breathe in the air of this naturalistic age that surrounds us. And so we've grown to think, kind of by way of secondhand smoke, we, we think that food is on the table because we put it there. You know, we, we think that the most important factors 
are the things that we can see and touch and schedule and swipe on a screen. We think it's our abilities and management that hold things in place. But in this text, God is mercifully pulling back the veil and he's showing us the way things really are. Beneath all reality are the words and commands of God. Right, that's how Genesis opens. God says, let there be, and it's so. He holds everything together by the word of his power. For, from the Andromeda galaxy to the blood cells in your body to the ability of your digestive system to properly function and produce enough energy for another day. Everything is held in its exact place by the expressed intention of God. Think about it. If God made everything out of nothing all by his spoken word, then you used to be nothing. <laughs> and the fact that you are anything now is simply because of the pleasure and will of God. If he were to stop speaking you into being right now, you would cease to be. And in this text, God is saying, don't move on from this Israel. Don't come into the land flowing with milk and honey and think that it's milk and honey that sustains you. I'm the one who holds you in place. And given that this is the case, it leads to the second observation. That there's a dimension to us that is not merely natural, but that needs to be fed. You don't live by bread alone. Right, that's a fact. You can be eating and breathing and not really be living. Because God's the one who defines life. We need more than just physical or temporal provision. We need to be fed by the word of God. What's the implication for this? It means read this book or die. Take it in like your life depends on it because it does. You know, famous preacher Charles Spurgeon told his congregation that there is enough dust on some of your Bibles to write the word damnation with your finger. <laughs> what does he mean? He means if you neglect this, don't think your faith is going to survive in the end. The very thing that unites you to God in a saving relationship is fed and sustained by the words, the revealed thoughts of your Savior. God's telling his people in this text, that growl you feel in your stomach because you haven't eaten in weeks, that doesn't compare to the groaning in your soul when you starve it of my words. I've heard it put like this before. Imagine if your spiritual condition and your intake of God's word displayed itself in your physical health. You know, if how much or how little you read and meditated on the Bible showed up in how you looked on the outside, what would you look like? Would you look like one of those emaciated children on the Feed the Hungry commercials? And we would suddenly realize how dangerous our neglect of the Bible really is. So God is pressing upon us here, not just our need for his care at every moment, 
but our need for him. Piper says, God is mightily honored when a people know that they will die of hunger and thirst unless they have God. You know what he's talking about? Do you feel that way? Does that sound totally foreign to you? God is the great gift. He's the reason we were rescued. And how is it that we get him? Well, he comes to us. God gives us himself for our satisfaction. And the, and the word of God on which we feed is not just ink on a page, but a person. And that's how Jesus interpreted this text. Let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 6. As we close. Eric, you can go ahead and come up, bro. In John 6... Jesus has performed his own miracle to feed the 5,000 with bread. And then he crosses the Sea of Galilee and comes to the shores of Capernaum. And the, the next day, the, the crowd goes ahead and, and meets him there and says, Hey, Master, what's, what's going on? How are things? Uh, but it soon becomes evident that they're not there really because they want Jesus. They're there because they, they want the side benefits that he offers, things like a free lunch. And when he doesn't give them what they came for, like Israel in the desert, they begin to complain. Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it was written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He, and God's bread is a person, He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What are you hungry for this morning? What are you most hoping that God gives you? Like the crowds on the shores of Capernaum, what have you crossed the sea to seek? Do you feel the ache in your stomach of loneliness? No matter how full the day's activity, there's this lingering emptiness because you don't feel loved. And the promise of the presence of God with you, it sounds nice, but not quite enough. You want certainty that all the things you're anxious about will perfectly fall into place? And consider this. Would you have been content today if I didn't tell you one thing from God's Word, 
but I gave you this secret insight that, you know, everything you'd ever have to face is going to fall perfectly in place. You're never going to have to experience failure. Would that cut it? Would you go away full, glad with what you received today? And I never opened this book. It's the greatest news, the greatest joy that I could give you to tell you that your finances will be set in an order and you'll never have to ask for God's provision again. Do not strive for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Faith in Jesus doesn't demand Jesus plus miracle bread. Faith in Jesus finds Jesus to be bread enough. And he's nourishment that comes to us freely, but at the greatest cost to himself. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus was crucified for food. He gave his life so that we could be restored to God and find him to be deeply satisfying. And communion is a time that we celebrate that. So if those who are serving would go ahead and come forward and take their place and we'll prepare to receive this meal together. The rest of us, let's look at verse 53. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. You know, the crowds come away saying, this is a hard saying that Jesus gives here. And it is. And we need to treat his words with care. He's already defined what he's talking about. In verse 35, eating of the bread of life is a metaphor for belief. So Jesus is talking about the feeding of faith. He doesn't just have in mind the communion meal. Here and, and certainly not the idea that the bread and wine actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus that we consume. He's saying, unless you have a relationship of trust toward him and his saving work, and, and, and the kind of faith that finds who he is and what he's done to be profoundly satisfying, then you have no spiritual life. That's a faith in Jesus involves the only way to have eternal life is to see the sacrifice of Jesus as sufficient. To believe in Him is to find Him to be enough. And so the communion meal that Jesus later instituted at the Last Supper, it points to the giving of His flesh for our sins, but, but it also reminds us that faith is not something we just do once and then we go on to crave other things. Yeah, I believed in Him, but where I'm locating my hope, hope right now, what I am desperate to have and achieve and to see land in my hands is something besides who He is. 
this meal is given by God as a mercy to us to target the cravings of our soul back to where they belong. The one who is sufficient and who has redeemed us. Jesus gives us this celebration, these symbols that we hold in our hands and we taste and we digest them to help us to recognize we're to come to him again and again as our only hope before God and as the one who conquers every contrary appetite. So let's hold that in our our minds as we come forward and feed on him by faith. So come and receive the elements as the ushers dismiss you guys and we'll sing together and then I'll lead us in, in taking these. Jesus says that the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. So let's take of this bread and as we do so, Remember the one who gave himself the cost of his own life to feed us for all eternity and restore us to the Lord. So let's take of the bread together. It says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Eternal life that is deeply and durably satisfying. So let's take of this cup. Let's remember forgiveness of sins that we have in Him and restoration to God as our source in life. Let's pray together. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, would there be a resounding amen coming forth from our hearts this morning, Lord, the same way that when we're with one another at a meal and enjoying the food and talking about how it tastes and just being delighted in what we have, Lord, would, would that be what's in our hearts today? And we would look to one another and say, isn't God satisfying? Isn't He enough? Lord, would it not be characteristic that in our conversations we complain and we grumble and we doubt and the only thing that we have to say and describe about life is how it's not meeting us where we want it to be. Whom have we but you? And if we have you, we have everything. So Lord, strengthen our faith. Use whatever loving means necessary to help us see that you are enough. Lord, we go forth this week satisfied in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a good week.